For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast only with The Nation magazine. I'm Dave Zirin. Another episode of what we've been calling Basketball Butterfly Effect with Arya Shirazi. And whoa, boy, do we have a good one this week. Hey, Ari, how you doing, sir? Very well. Yourself? Well, I, I come here with a saddened eye because, I mean, somewhat coincidentally or profoundly coincidentally, today... Uh, passed away Earl the Twirl Curitan. A very, very niche, but very fun to watch 1980s basketball player with the Detroit Pistons. And we're going to dedicate this episode to Earl the Twirl, and we're also going to talk some Detroit. The whole point of the episode this week, oh listeners, is trying to understand how Detroit did it. When I say how Detroit did it, I'm talking about the Pistons championship teams from 1988 and 1989. And I really wanted to dissect with Ari how they did it, because I consider the Bad Boys Pistons to be the most unique feat in the history of the National Basketball Association. And I just want to say what I mean by that real quick, and then I'll throw it to Ari and see what he thinks. We're going to talk about these Pistons, but first, let me just say that if you are if you think we're going to speak about what Detroit was looking like in the 80s, what music was in the Motor City, Detroit Rock City, and all that stuff, see the Bad Boys documentary. It's very good. It's about all the players, the ins and outs. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the amazing fact that in the midst of three of the most storied dynasties in the history of the NBA the 80s Celtics, the 80s Lakers, and the 90s Bulls, led by the three iconic superstars of their or maybe any generation, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. You have this upstart, this team that played with just guts, guile, and thuggish, ruggish amazingness that just clawed their way through these three dynasties to not just win two titles as we're talk as we're going to talk about but they very easily could have won four there's so much to say about it uh i have a lot to say certainly but this is what we're talking about this week how did this team claw its way i'm going to use that word a lot through three different dynasties and proclaim themselves as a dynasty unto themselves the bad boy Pistons. Ari, great to talk to you, man. Thank you. Uh, Dave, I really think that you put it the best way when you said that they were unique. The Detroit Pistons, the bad boy Pistons, were this wonderful anomaly. I would say that I can't think of any other team 
of any era that symbolizes the era in which they played and is also important because of when they played as those Pistons teams. The Pistons made the finals in 1988, 89, and 1990, winning the last two. So we're really talking about what I consider the golden age of the NBA. Every period of the NBA has its legendary players, has its legendary teams. It's a matter of choice as to what era or assortment of players or style of play you prefer. I consider this time period that we're talking about, as I said, to be the golden age of the NBA. Uh, It is the time when Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Akeem Olajuwon, Charles Barkley, Carl Malone, John Stockton, and Patrick Ewing are all in their primes. And you could name 15 to 20 other great players who are having great seasons as well as that time. Uh, But that's what the NBA, this is the time period that we are talking about. We're talking about the end of the 80s. And for all of the storied reputation, rightfully so, that the 80s NBA has, it was actually far from an egalitarian league at the top. Making the finals was actually very exclusive. Only five franchises, five organizations made the finals in the entire decade of the 80s, which is kind of nuts, actually. Yeah. Uh, And I bet you can name them right now. Oh, sure. Celtics, Lakers, 76ers, Pistons, and the Rockets. Correct. So... There was I, no, I almost stumbled with the Rockets for a second. Yeah, you nailed it, of course. There was so there was not a lot of opportunity. As many great players and now legendary coaches as there were in that decade, it was very rarefied at the very top. And those teams and organizations that you just mentioned, uh are represented by not just Hall of Famers, but the players who are who are now considered the very greatest players in the NBA. With the Celtics, you had a young Larry Bird and Tiny Archibald, then going into the Bird, McHale, Dennis Johnson teams. With those guys, uh, it was the <clears throat> yeah, it was the Showtime. Lakers with Magic and Kareem. It was the 76ers with Julius Irving and Moses Malone, MVP uh, style Moses. And then two different versions of the Rockets uh, who lost to two different versions of the Celtics. In the finals, uh, the first Rockets team had uh, an MVP, Moses, when he was in the West. And then the later team has the Twin Towers, 
with Samson and Elijah, making a somewhat uh, kind of a premature, unexpected run where they beat, where they they upset the Lakers true, uh, true. In, in the West Finals. I would just I would just add though that eighty five eighty six Rockets team though was much better than that earlier Rockets team, which I think was 40 and 42. Oh, wow. You only really got past the Lake or 42 and 40. doesn't matter. But they got past the Lakers because that was when Magic was feuding, uh, like Westfall and all all sorts of muckety-muck was going on there, as depicted in in winning time uh, on HBO Max, which they canceled. But... Ari, you said something I want, I, want to, I want to circle around because you make the great point that the top of the NBA was very exclusive, but there was also great ball happening everywhere. And that goes back to the Pistons because what I find so amazing is that it was very, you know, Lakers-Celtics, Lakers-Celtics with the Rockets making a, a little cameo appearance. Um, but then you, you, you have this Pistons team that was able to claw through. And if I had said to you, who's going to be the one team that claws through the Lakers Celtics stranglehold? I mean, you very well might've said the Dominique Wilkins Hawks, the Cavs of Mark Price, the Barkley led 76ers. I mean, there are a lot of of the bucks, of course, um, there are just, there are so many teams laden with hall of famers you know, the Alex English Nuggets. And yet it was the Pistons that broke through of all of them. And that's what I want to try to figure out is what was so special about them relative to an NBA that was laden with second tier teams that today would knock your socks off. Well, you had referred to the Pistons earlier as an upstart. Uh, and it might have seemed that way at the time, but actually those Pistons are kind of the greatest example of a decade-long team build where you are truly building from the bottom. These Pistons were, uh, they were deep. They went nine deep with essential rotation rotation pieces making for an even stronger collective whole uh but of course the uh the 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 star of the team uh both kind of on court and off court is Isaiah Thomas mm. and so in a way the pistons being able to rise to the finals and then becoming a two-time championship team is kind of parallel with the Isaiah Thomas story. Isaiah is drafted uh, second overall after winning a national championship at Indiana uh, at in his sophomore year, enters the comes into the NBA right after that. So Isaiah is coming in as a very high draft pick, but as a twenty-year-old six-foot guard, at a time when 
almost every 20-year-old basketball player was still in college. And when building around a six-foot guard was not ever looked at as the recipe for championship success. One last wrinkle before you go on on that, that's really important, is that, you know, Isaiah went to, goes to Indiana and no Bob Knight players left after their sophomore years. I mean, it was almost like you were signing up for a four-year Army stint. So Isaiah leaving after two years, after winning a title, I mean, he was, he was that special. You know, going number two, is a, that was a consensus pick, him going number two. That wasn't a, a shocking moment. And what I find so fascinating about Isaiah, well, actually, let me just throw you the rock as if I'm Isaiah Thomas in 1985 when he set the NBA record for assists in a season, soon to be broken numerous times by John Stockton. But, you know, given that John Stockton somewhere right now is in a basement you know, polishing various firearms. I'm just going to say, Isaiah, you were so skilled and special. But the most special thing of all, maybe, was that he sublimated his own skills for the purposes of the rise of the bad boy Pistons. Because that early Isaiah, I mean, the, the NBA record for points in a game is 186-184, the Pistons beating the Nuggets in mile high in the Mile High area. I don't know what, what it's called. But it, that's the way that those early Pistons were with Chuck Daly. Like they were, you know, Kelly Chapuka dropping 60. That actually happened. Or 58. But either way, it was a lot of points. Kelly Chapuka, who didn't know how to play defense. Kelly Chapuka, who actually coached me at Hall of Fame basketball camp. Actually, he coached a different group. But I was on the court with him many times. Um, that... Isaiah, that to me is sort of the secret sauce of how they did it was not Isaiah flowering to this, you know, 28 points, 11 assists guy, but bringing it down several notches for a slower paced, more defensive team. I mean, that was pretty damn counterintuitive and ahead of its time. And of course, later we saw it, you know, really achieve its supremacy in the 90s with uh, our beloved Knicks. With a nod to Kenny Anderson and Kyrie Irving and a few others. Isaiah Thomas is the greatest ball handler I've ever seen. And you were talking about young Isaiah. Young Isaiah, Isaiah in his 20s. Isaiah before he was winning championships. Uh, was a breathtaking player to watch. Was an unbelievable player amongst unbelievable players when chances are he was the smallest dude on the floor. But as I said, the the Piston story, uh, Isaiah's story, you know, at the same time being Isaiah's story is 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 a wonderful story. He is drafted second because the Pistons are terrible. So he goes to a bad team, kind of a somewhat demoralized, directionless franchise. And his first couple of years, in the, he immediately shows himself to be 
a fantastic player, one of the best guards in the league. But those first couple of teams are still pretty poor. And nobody knows for sure if you can build a team around a six-foot point guard, even one as electrifying as Isaiah. And it is really just about year by year they add components which which are the components to a championship team it is kind of a beautiful exercise in patience and in long-term vision uh shortly after isaiah is drafted uh the pistons bring on a big man who nobody really seems to want who doesn't have a defined future in the nba bill Beer who becomes Isaiah's running mate, running buddy, the entire time throughout the Pistons' ascendance and is as important an ingredient as any and is also synonymous with the Pistons becoming the bad boys. Uh, A year or two later, they bring on what I consider as important, if not the most important element to this team, which is hiring Chuck Daly as coach. Mm. And, uh, you know, of course, these are the Chuck Daly Pistons, and he is truly the architect of this team, which keeps adding players to complement their emerging core. Sixth man, guard whose name kind of speaks for itself Vinnie Johnson the microwave instant offense off the bench capable of putting up many points in bunches they bring on Rick Mahorn to pair in the front court with Lame Beer uh, creating the most bruising and and pain inducing front court in the league Uh, just credit where it's due that was the idea of the Bruise Brothers of Rick Mahorn and Jeff Ruland on the Washington Bullets, but Ruland couldn't stay healthy. And McCloskey thought, hey, you know, I could pair him with this guy, Bill Lane Beer, or as Peter Vesey of the New York Post liked to call him, Bill Stale Ale. And, and so, so, you know, it's like, it's a lot of creative thinking, like creative drafting, um, free agent work, you know, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the, like, just the free agents they signed who were perfect for marginal roles. And, like, James Buddha Edwards, but there are others. But Mahorn was so key to this because Mahorn traded for a really good player named Dan Roundfield. Like, that's who the Bullets got back. But Mahorn changed the attitude of the team, gave it an ethos beyond you know, we'll outscore you 186 to 184. And we don't need Kelly Trapuca. Yeah, and and that realization is crucial. Uh, They, they, in the midst of that, they draft in the first round uh, an unheralded guard from a small college, Joe Dumars, who who in teaming with Isaiah in the backcourt 
becomes a two-time champion and Hall of Famer. Uh, and uh, as you had mentioned, they, as they get better and move up the standings, they upgrade accordingly. They, they go from having Trapuca at small forward as the leading scorer, somebody, as you said, who's uh, very capable of putting up big numbers nightly in the NBA, but not necessarily the guy you want in that role if you consider yourself a serious team. Mm -hmm. So they upgrade from Trapuca by bringing in Adrian Dantley, who's already, uh, I think, won a scoring title in Utah. So an established score. And Dantley becomes, in a way, the uh, the final ingredient in the Pistons going from an emerging team in the East centered around a young all-star guard into a team looking to enter the uh, the championship conversation. I mean, Lane Beer was so unique, you needed Dantley. I mean, Lane Beer was just a dead-eye shooter who could also bruise and rebound. I mean, he made four all-star teams, for goodness sakes. That was a time, though, where you felt like if you didn't have someone you could put down on the post, a McHale, a Kareem, you were in trouble. And Trapuco was not a post player. And Dantley was the post player. I mean... I just want to put enough credit with Dantley. I mean, 30 points a game was his norm in Utah. I mean, he could have won several scoring titles down there. And, um, and so him coming to Detroit, I mean, that, that was a, that was a real, I remember that was really interesting at the time because it's like, Oh, now that's a chess piece they didn't have before. Yeah. And it pays immediate dividends. 1987, is the year that they truly break through. I think that's about three years or so into uh, Chuck Daly's Chuck Daly's uh, stint as coach. Uh, and they and they're becoming more and more acclimated and buying into uh, to Daly's system and the way that the players are being, Use they uh, as we've talked about on a previous episode, they kind of strike gold in the 1986 draft uh, by uh, bringing in John Sally to bolster their front court and then particularly their front court defense, and even more so in the second round uh, by drafting Dennis Rodman, who also I mean I, I've said this about numerous players. As important as anybody in the Pistons' identity and who they were to become as they were becoming a championship team. But 1987 is, I think, the first time that the NBA realizes, or and, I'll, and certainly when I look at the Pistons as, okay, that's the team that Isaiah Thomas plays for to, okay, this is a team that is capable of hopefully upsetting the Boston Celtics. Mm -hmm. The 
championship round entrenched Boston Celtics. At this point, the defending champion Celtics and the Pistons behind this group of players who we've just mentioned go to the Eastern Conference Finals and wind up taking Boston to uh, an incredibly hard-fought seventh game. And it's not only in that season and in that series uh, that really serves as the Pistons coming out as an upper echelon team built to last. But in that series with Boston, they bring up, uh, they're surrounded by a fair share of drama, which kind of defines them and which they wind up cultivating somewhat. Uh, but it is in that series where it's tied two to two and they're about to win game five in Boston. They're about to steal game five in the Boston Garden and uh, and head back to Detroit with a three to two lead and what becomes one of the most famous endings to any playoff basketball game. Larry Bird steal improbably steals a pass from Isaiah Thomas, feeds Dennis Johnson, who scores to give the Celtics again a completely improbable win and kind of snatching that series lead in heartbreaking fashion. And the Pistons actually pull it together to force the game seven, also back in Boston, where uh, they're leading in the fourth quarter when hustling for a loose ball, Adrian Dantley and Vinny Johnson bang heads. John, uh, Dantley's actually knocked out for a short time and has a concussion, but they're both knocked out of the game and wind up uh, like losing by three points. Still a one-possession game that they lose in Game 7 in Boston. And that is the beginning of what's really a, a five-year a five-year, as you said, totally unique run as the bad boy Detroit Pistons starts at that time by uh, losing in devastating fashion to, to the Celtics uh, and coming back the next year uh, even extra more focused. Yeah, I want you to get into that next year, but that was also the series of Bird steals the ball to DJ up and in with Isaiah throwing away the steal, the Bird steal. So talk about a devastating series loss. Would not for a double noggin knocker and a pass that I'm sure Isaiah sees in his dreams. You know, they, they get out of that. That also speaks, though, to just the mental toughness of this team, though. Because that's as devastating as it gets, and it's about to get worse, as you're about to say. But these guys were just hard as shit. Go ahead. Absolutely, but their response to that tough, narrow loss and that frustration uh, in the in the wake of that loss to Boston, uh, Dennis Rodman introduces a racial 
component to the dynamic that Isaiah Thomas then supports. So, so that becomes, as I said, the Pistons are are looked at as a team that uh, a a team that has drama surrounding them and that sometimes feeds off of off of drama in the wake of those comments directed at Larry Bird by two of Detroit's most kind of signature players, the Pistons take that take that controversy and as I said, start to cultivate kind of a villainous image and and relish the image of the nonconformist and the outsider looking to break through the ivory, the corporate ivory towers of the Celtics and the Lakers who have been dominating the league. And they use that. They use that kind of negative publicity, any negative publicity coming their way. They use that as further fuel to not only topple the Celtics, but try to topple the Lakers as well. Mm. I'll, I'll tell you, like this, this idea of how history would be different if they'd had those four titles... I mean, Dan- Dantley, very close. I mean, I've, I wouldn't have, it's interesting. Like, Dantley winning a finals MVP, not out of the question in the slightest, given how egalitarian the team had become at that point in Isaiah's career. So how did they do it? How are they able to claw their way through? We, we've picked on a couple of things so far that we should tease out. Like we've talked about their ability to persevere through some serious heartbreak along the way. We talked about their ability to change their style from much more of a run and gun style around Isaiah's genius to Isaiah actually sublimating his genius for the purposes of involving other players. And I think we have to talk about Chuck Daly's managerial genius for that second title of pulling back on, I mean, that's when they started Rodman. Well, let, let's, let, let's not get I, quite ahead I, of ourselves I there. I got a little ahead of ourselves, sorry. Uh, no, but, but I think you actually hit on something that's as important as anything else. And I think that it was probably a combination of both Daly and Thomas recognizing it. Uh, you, you said something about toning down Isaiah's genius of sorts. Uh, if Isaiah Thomas is looking to be a primary scorer, they probably are not looking to play for a championship. And I think by this point, this is already about six, seven years into Isaiah's all-star career. And I think that it's probably apparent to everybody in that organization and on the court, and certainly to Isaiah himself, that, uh, that he needs to be the leader of a group effort. And that's where... Uh, you know, the question of how did they do it? That is why the Pistons are the Pistons. The Pistons are this wonderful anomaly because they are an anomaly 
you know, we had talked about where they fit in to NBA history. And it is those two championship years sandwiched by, as you had said, the Bird Celtics and the Magic Lakers before going into the Jordan Bulls, the Elijah on Rockets, the Bulls again, and then a decade of the Duncan Spurs and the Kobe Shaq Lakers. So history is saying you need a top 10 all-time player to win a championship in that time. Because with the exception of the Pistons, all of those championship teams and a few dynasties mixed in there are led by top 10 or top 5 all-time players. The Pistons clearly do not have that, which is what makes them the Pistons and why they are that, as I said, what I consider to be a wonderful anomaly because it is not only the most successful example of team building, and we've now talked about the different components that all complemented each other so perfectly that they were able to not only compete with, but also defeat these mega superstar driven teams, which also had outstanding players, all-star players and grade A role players supporting those mega superstars. Isaiah was not a mega superstar. He was a star, an all-star, a superstar, but not on the level that apparently you needed to win a championship. So that's what made, again, that's what made this team and the construction of this team such a triumphant and such a, uh, in a way, revolutionary uh, exercise. Because not only did they buck the trend, but wound up, we had talked about them being so symptomatic of the time in which they played. The Detroit Pistons, you, you had talked about the pairing of Beer and Mahorn. The Detroit Pistons played a brand of basketball that barely, I mean, barely resembles the game today, really, the NBA game today. But again, it was now almost looks like a relic because the rules of engagement uh, have changed so severely. But again, this was the, the, the lead in to the 1988 season after falling short to the Celtics in 87. The Pistons return completely intact and even more uh, driven with multiple chips on their shoulders. Uh, make it to the finals this time where they play the defending champion Lakers looking to live up to Pat Riley's guarantee of a repeat. And so again, it is kind of the ultimate, it is the showtime Los Angeles Lakers in Hollywood, multiple championships already in the 80s, led by a the time the league signature player going up against a team representing a city in Detroit and the image 
and struggles that that city represented. And after finally toppling the Boston juggernaut, it was truly this ultimate contrast in styles. And the 1988 final uh, is really fascinating. I don't know how much uh, you recall about it. It's a really interesting finals to revisit. Anna, you had recently talked about Isaiah Thomas, I think, scoring, what was it, 16 points in 94 seconds in the playoffs against the Knicks. That was the kind of thing that Isaiah could do. Uh, Isaiah was uh, among one-of-a-kind players. He was a one-of-a-kind player. He's a once-in-a-lifetime player, the way Isaiah Thomas played the game. And he further establishes his legend in this finals in another very, very hard fought back and forth close final series against the Lakers. Uh, it goes to a game six. And in the third quarter, Isaiah Thomas suffers a pretty nasty ankle injury. And there are these famous clips of him hobbling around, hopping around, literally on one foot. And it is on basically one foot, you know, like the pain, the agony visible in, you know, in, in every movement uh, and every facial expression. Isaiah puts up a playoff record 25 points in that quarter. He puts on one of the greatest performances in any game ever, scoring 25 points in the third quarter and in what at the time seemed to be typical Pistons injustice and just terrible luck with a one-point lead in game six with the, Pist uh, with the Pistons leading. The series, three to two. And in that game six where Isaiah puts on that heroic performance to keep Detroit in the game, the Pistons are clinging to a one-point lead when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar misses a hook shot, but a foul is called on Lane Beer. And replays show that there was no contact whatsoever. But we're talking about the NBA's all-time leading scorer, versus the player in the NBA that no referee is going to give the benefit of any doubt to. And a foul is called. Kareem ices both free throws, sends it to a game seven where Isaiah uh, gives it a, a, a valiant go, but is very, very hobbled and is far more ineffective. And, uh, and the, and, the Lakers prevail in 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 a seventh game. Further uh, adding further motivation and kind of us against the world ship attitude that that team took on, and it is coming. Uh, and really, uh, in addition to making that finals appearance, I think one of the one of the most important aspects that comes out of that series is the way in which the Pistons play Magic Johnson. Mm -hmm. They are throwing defenders at him. He is double and triple teamed. He is bumped and hit and knocked at 
all times. Rodman's in his face. Sally's in his face. Mahorn's in his face. And Magic, by the end of that series, is visibly frustrated by the way in which he has been played by the Pistons and the way in which the officials are allowing allowing defense to be played. And it is that kind of effective, ultra-physical defense on Magic Johnson that that not only define the Pistons' de- defensive identity and kind of alters the way we we had talked extensively about the Pat Riley Knicks, who inherit the uh, the style of defense that the Pistons kind of create and take and and ride to to two championships, uh, changing the way that NBA defense is played, forcing uh, referees to consider questioning the way defense is officiated and setting the blueprint for how the Pistons are going to play Michael Jordan to keep an emerging Chicago team from knocking them off their perch. Well, you're saying that the famous Jordan rules maybe should be better understood as the magic rules. No, I mean, you know, Jordan rules probably sounds better. And, yeah. and, and they employ that for a few years. And, and, and that is so important because Jordan and Phil Jackson and Chicago recognize it is conquering the Jordan rules that enables them to conquer the Pistons finally and never look back. So I think Jordan rules is apropos. It begins with how how they play Magic Johnson in the 88 finals and seeing its effectiveness and its utter frustration. Mm. Well, that's right on, man. So we're we're actually hitting the end of our time, tragically. But I think we've we've actually settled a lot of hash here. I mean, the Pistons are so unique in NBA history. I mean, this is we haven't really touched on this, but like Isaiah Thomas was a superstar, and yet when I think of these Pistons teams, I think of them as a team without a superstar. Because I, for me, Isaiah Thomas, superstar, we talked about this last week with the Knicks, was the guy who scored 16 points in 94 seconds to almost win a deciding playoff game before Bernard King went nuclear. And that guy was not the guy who led the bad boys. He did it a different kind of way. But then in that 1990 um, NBA Finals, he averages 25 a game for those finals and wins the MVP, which to me, I always said, you know, okay, this guy, you know, in the 26 points or 25 points that you mentioned in game six against the Lakers, the guy had it in him. He had it in him. And he also put everything onto the court. I mean, there's a lot of negative things to say about Isaiah that we could do a whole show on, but he was done at age 31, wasn't he? I mean, look at Steph just dropped 60 at age 35. And to me, Steph is the one person who's usurped 
Isaiah on my personal guard list all time, point guard. I've always been magic one, Isaiah two, always. And hung to that deep into the Steph era. Had to give it up after the last title, but it says, I mean, what Isaiah could have done with better training, load management, all the things that they do now to extend careers. I could have, I, I definitely could have had some more Isaiah in my life on the court. You know, <laughs> you know, I think what makes the Pistons so special is that there are legitimately seven, eight players who I could not imagine that team being that team without them. And, 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 and that team wouldn't be that team if even that player wasn't there. And, and that almost has not been duplicated. We've, we had talked about how much of an anomaly this team was, how unique. And then I had talked about, uh, you know, what came before and what came after following the much more familiar pattern of being run by a superstar or superstars. It isn't until the 2004 Pistons that we see any of this again, and that's even more fleeting. That's just one championship year, but it, it's 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 kind of crazy that when it happens again, fifteen years later, it's the Pistons again. <laughs> uh, but but I think but but that is certainly as important as anything else is the fact that. They built a team over a period of years uh, where so many of the components were crucial. Yeah. And uh, right, you know, we had talked about Dantley. We hadn't talked about how they then flipped Dantley for Mark Aguirre, yeah. uh, which ultimately who gets the who gets the rings. He gets the rings, and that hurts. And, and, and I don't mean to say that as though, as though you know, those really should have been Dantley's rings. Uh, they they didn't win with Dantley. They won with Mark Aguirre, and with Mark Aguirre playing a huge role as that low post, very often first option for you know forward. And again, not to diminish. Dantley's huge role in the emergence of Detroit. But I think because he is traded for Aguirre during that first championship season, I feel that maybe Mark's contributions are somewhat uh somewhat marginalized more than more than they should be. I think that there is merit towards I mean as much as any other team, it was the the Pistons built a culture, and it was that incredibly unique, hard nosed defensive culture that became a championship culture. Uh, Aguirre apparently fit that culture better. They liked Aguirre more. <laughs> they liked playing with Aguirre more, and that you know, I mean, looking at that, however you know, however you want to. Uh, it was an Isaiah demand, and I don't fault Isaiah for that, but him and Aguirre were buddies going way back into Chicago. I believe they came out in the same draft with Aguirre being number one. We talked about Isaiah being number two. 
And that first championship season, Aguirre averages 20 a game for an, for the whole season. I mean, that's far more, that to me is like, whoa, your role players leading the team in scoring. That's a pretty darn good role. The second year, he definitely was uh, pushed to the background more with the as, as Rodman starts to take an even bigger role, for sure. Uh, I think as much as anything else, I think one of the biggest testaments to who those bad boy Pistons were is when you look at the dream team. And I know that Isaiah's exclusion from that team uh, has been oft debated over the years. Uh, but the coach of that dream team is Chuck Daly. And this is at a time when Pat Riley has is an active coach with more rings than Chuck. Phil Jackson uh, already has the first of his two rings with Chicago. Don Nelson, Larry Brown, there's a lot of big name Hall of Fame coaches in the league at that time. That first dream team, that uh, that dream team that, of course, can never be duplicated from 92. In a way, of course, the coach of that team is Chuck Daly. Yeah, it made all the sense in the world. You know, and I realize this is, might be seen as lame in some circles, but I'll, I'll never not be annoyed that Isaiah Thomas wasn't on the first dream team. That will never not bother me. And I know how important Stockton was statistically at the time. But did we need Stockton and Malone on that team? You know, I mean, it, it's just one of those things that's good that, that I just feel like, you know, in the grand arc narrative of the pettiness of Michael Jordan and how he used that pettiness to drive him forward and the power of Michael Jordan looking Chuck Daly in the eye and saying he's not going to be on this team and Chuck Daly saying, I guess my guy isn't going to be on the team. And that's some wild shit right there. And Chuck Daly, say, resigning in protest or something would have been unthinkable and cataclysmic given the importance of that team for introducing, you know, the world, really, in many respects, to NBA basketball. I will wrap up by saying that uh, I, I have loved talking about this team uh, talking about this time in the NBA, which, as I said, uh, is really my favorite time in the league. And and now that so many years have passed, I love everything about the Bad Boy Pistons. But when, at the time, when it was live, I had a very love-ate relationship with that Pistons team. I supported them strongly when they played the Celtics and the Bulls. And I rooted against them vociferously when they played the Knicks, the Lakers, and the Trailblazers. So uh, so it was such a... a Me too. So it was a team like no other, and my relationship with that team was like no other, which I think was appropriate. Bam. You always know how to end on a slam dunk, the likes of which Bill Lane Beer could not do. Um, <laughs> yo, thanks, everybody, for listening. Basketball Butterfly Effect, Edge of Sports.
podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. He's Arya Shirazi. I'm Dave Zirin. We are out of here. Peace.